Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing and stories for anyone what likes them or likes making them. Or, indeed, would like to like making them. Three goals in the Death of a Thousand Cuts mission statement. Three jewels in the crown of this our podcast. Three lions on our shirt. Three coins in a fountain, which one will the fountain bless? Little unexpected snatch of Roman holiday there for you. Unnecessary digressions and sudden bursts of song aren't two of the goals, by the way. They're more harmless waste products of what we do here, which, as those of you returning to the show know full well, is helping you to write more, better and happier. That's it. Volume, quality and satisfaction. Boarding a miniaturised submarine to voyage into the colon of fiction therein to dredge the mucus-coated walls in search of the precious sweet corn husks. Oh, wisdom. Why use a miniature submarine? For that, you may ask. Why not just wait till the person goes to the toilet and retrieve the sweet corn from their stools in the traditional manner? Well, because there was a research grant going and we had to make up a reason why we needed it. Bum voyage, brave rectonauts. Let our journey begin. In today's episode, I'm going to be looking at the first 250 words of a story sent in by a listener and giving feedback. I'll read it out in a second, and you can also find the text on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can click through to the right page if you'd like to read along. It's by no means mandatory reading along, but it might help you get a bit more out of what I'm saying and draw your own conclusions if you can see it on the page as text and maybe have a read yourself before I do. These episodes aren't about ceremonially roasting someone for not being perfect, but for giving you an opportunity to practice close high-level editing so you can take those skills back to your own work and make it as good as it can be. If you'd like to know how to submit your own work, stick around to the end. But before we start, today's show doesn't have a sponsor, but as you may know, I'm a professional author and my next novel, The Ice House, is out from Canongate in May of this year. If you like today's show, if what I do has value to you, gives you something that helps you out, then a great way you can support me and this podcast is by pre-ordering the Ice House. It's a story about an old woman called Delphine pulled out of retirement for one last job and a 400-year-old field medic pathologist battle nun plotting to bring down an empire. It's about getting older and loss and forgetting if you like authors like Neil Gaiman, if you like stories that are weird but with an emotional heart. I think you're going to really dig this one. I know pre-ordering doesn't come naturally to most readers. Why wouldn't you just wait till it comes out and buy it in the shop? But it really helps us authors. All those sales count in our first week. So it gives us this huge boost and it creates excitement beforehand. So if you think you might at all enjoy reading my novel, could you use the poor impulse control that has dogged your whole life for the forces of good just this once and click one of the links in the show notes or on the fun page of my website timclairpert.co.uk or just google Tim Clare the ice house and put in a pre-order it will take you under 120 seconds i reckon then boom you're done and you'll have helped me out hugely genuinely i'm not just saying that and of course bias win-win if you ask me but I am, of course, biased. And if you want to make it win-win-win, you can order from Mr B's Emporium, a fantastic independent bookshop in Bath, and all copies pre-ordered from there. I'll go down and sign before they're sent out. If they get more than 100 pre-orders from you, the loyal listeners, I'll even write a little bit of, tiny bit of extra content to send out with each one. How's that? 
And do let me know if you pre-order. I'll give you a shout out. Thank you to Orla. I so appreciate your support. Thank you to Caroline. It's the first time you've ever pre-ordered a book. Hopefully it isn't such a profoundly negative experience that you never read again. Thank you, Rebecca. Your service will be remembered come the great sifting of the unworthy. So I estimate from different messages I've had from people now that we've got about 40 pre-orders through the door. That's just under... 3% of the 1,500 we need to uh, all but guarantee the Ice House enters the UK hardback bestseller charts on its week of release, depending on how invested you are in my success and my emotional well-being. That may be an important statistic to you or completely irrelevant. The road to 1,500 starts here, my friends. Join us. Right, and with that, let's have a crack at today's story. Thank you so much for listening. Today's story is untitled... And it's by M. The old druid was creeping her out. It's a hard, thankless living, being the only watcher in these Feline lands, he was saying over his glass of wine. But somebody has to do it. He winked at Shear in the firelight. Ew. I cut this glade myself. Admittedly, there weren't many trees to cut. The flora is sparse here, as you can see. And I built my home with these very hands. I'm not the strapping young man I used to be but I don't shy from hardship. Not old Zartes. The duty I accepted at the Druid Council. Oh my God, just kill me now. Cher looked at her father, smoking his pipe and running his fingers over a beard like hanging moss. Her father seemed enraptured by their host, but surely that was the wine. How long would he make them stay here with this old, this old leathery... Cher appraised Zartes, who was still blathering on and on about his boring duty to the Druid Council. What would the desert equivalent of Old Codger be? Old Gecko? Old Desert Bat? Old Iguana? Zartes was like an old leathery Iguana. Or were Iguanas tropical? She and her father hadn't been to the tropics for years, not since she was a child. The Felini are terrifying, my dear, Zartes said. He was talking to her. She snapped back to the present. Um, he gave Cher's father an amused look. She's never seen one, has she? Takmatspa. Her father, smiling genially, shook his head. Then he blew out a family of ethereal smoke rings that floated away one after the other. Okay, so that was the extract. Read... I mean, it was an all right reading by me. I do apologise. I, I sometimes tempted to do voices... You know, I, 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 I'm kind of like dungeon master it up a little bit and uh, and be the Fellini are terrifying, my and all this kind of the Fellini are terrifying or the Fellini are terrifying, my not Fellini, it's Felline. A Fellini is a uh, cinema auteur. No, but the reason I don't do it is because I think that would just get in the way of you and the text. I don't want to add stuff that the author might not intend. So that's why I did a slightly flat reading. Uh, You can use your imagination because, of course, when you were reading it yourself, you'd have a bit more. Anyway, the cuts. The old druid was creeping her out. So normally I like to take at least half the episode dismantling the first sentence and using it as a jumping off point for all sorts of fundamental creative writing principles and really hammering home all the things one must or mustn't do. The first line is often a microcosm of weaknesses that run right through the entire manuscript, such that deep analysis yields insights you can apply to the second line, the third line, the story's overarching structure, the style choices, and so on. But um, this first sentence is fine. It's kind of blunt, because you're telling, not showing. Personally, I'd rather 
watch the interaction that creeps her out, observe her body language and her internal feelings and feel the crawliness with her. But on the other hand, you've traded texture for economy. Very quickly, we get genre or at least a hint at it. If there's an old druid, this is either fantasy or someone round the campfire at Beltane wishing their shrooms would hurry up and kick in. The line gives us two characters, the druid and her, and a mild conflict between them. All of those are good, interesting things. An old druid, right, is striking. Uh, druids, nice and specific. You've gone for druid, not just old man. And we get a sense of voice here. This is fairly close third person limited, where the narrator picks up some of the tone of the protagonist. This suggests a young character in this sentence because she calls the druid old and uses the laconic bit of youth street slang creeping her out. So yeah, why not? If I have any problems at all with this as a first line, they're more personal style preferences than actual bona fide flaws. You're not bound to change something just because a reader or a writer like me says, well, that isn't the way I would do it. And and you, and you know what? Like, that's something we can extend to most creative writing principles. Writing doesn't have rules. It has norms. Producing style norms like show, don't tell or avoid the passive voice or don't overwhelm your narrative with metaphors and similes. Making a decision to break those norms, that has definite effects. And you can choose to do those things. You can choose it and they're not always wrong per se. So, for example, you can experiment with the effects that are produced by breaking one of those rules. Um, in his track Acid Rap, Chance the Rapper has the line where he says, sometimes the truth don't rhyme. And indeed, that line doesn't rhyme with any of the bars before or after it. Clearly, it violates the usual contemporary hip-hop game of interlacing rhymes and internal rhymes and B-rhymes. But in doing so, it draws our attention to that game and he flags up what he's doing in the line itself so we don't mistake it for some weird lapse in craft and the fact that I remember it and I'm mentioning it to you now and I enjoyed it at the time shows I think that it was a successful move so as a writer you're perfectly entitled to quote unquote break quote unquote rules the issue isn't that you violated some sacred author's code and the story cops are going to come rappelling through the ceiling to bust you but simply that not following these rules while usually easier because it's just something you don't have to think about is usually less effective too it's like playing tennis and just picking up the ball and posting it physically over the net you can be all i won't be constrained by rules man but no one's going to be impressed by how liberated you are you're just taking an easy option that doesn't require skill or patience or practice or craft which to be clear isn't what i think you're doing here in this instance you've just made a trade-off color has been traded off for speed, which is perfectly valid. And, and I know when I say, well, that's perfectly valid, it sounds like I'm being passive aggressive in English. What do you think of what do you think of what this story does? I think it's um perfectly valid. I, I mean that genuinely. Um and, and many, many readers prefer the decision you've made. Like uh, I, I I definitely have an issue for some readers with going too far the other way. Some people like the fact that my stories are kind of like rich and full of me farting on about all sorts of different kind of like 
bits and pieces in the world and really zeroing in on details. For other people, they would rather I just got on with it. And and, and both of those things can exist. And I, I'm not here to dictate the one true way for writing. I pray fervently uh, I never grow so charismatic and respected that I convince the world to only write Tim Clare fan fiction. That would not be fun for me. Um. By Tim Clare fan fiction, I mean fiction in the style of the author Tim Clare, not fiction starring me, Tim Clare, as a protagonist and, say, Goku from Dragon Ball Z trying to get the Chaos Emeralds back from Jafar from Aladdin, which, believe you me, I would be into as a story. I wouldn't. Or would I? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Please, please. I know <laughs> I know what you guys are like. Please don't write it. Or should you? No, don't. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes, you're writing. Sorry, I'm... I'm it's a hard, thankless living, being the only watcher in these felini lands, he was saying over his glass of wine. Um, decidedly mixed feelings, Em. I can't help but suspect that the reason he's creeping her out is because he's talking in the stilted artificial manner of a fictional character with exposition to disgorge. It's a hard, thankless living I can just about swallow as a piece of dialogue delivered in a conversation we've joined in part way. He's got a captive audience, this druid, maybe he's a bit of a ham. He's playing up his role. That's fine. People use cliches when they talk. Shared cliches can be a form of fatic communion. They emphasise belonging. We use uh, little catchphrases and stuff that we recognise to show that we're part of the in-group. But... Being the only watcher in these felini lands, I, I, I imagine his sentence continues, constantly having to restate your job title and the name of the area you're in to people who know both already. This dialogue has no real function except to drop in backstory. And it's all backstory we've got no reason to feel invested in yet, so it feels like an imposition, an intrusion. Sheer has only one goal in the scene, which is, I guess to not be listening to the person who's talking. But she doesn't take any active steps towards that. She's not She's not moving it or pushing herself into conflict. So from a dramatic point of view, we are trapped listening to this creepy dude exposit stuff that we're not that invested in and not even the protagonist wants to be listening to him. So our formative experience of your story, of your fictional world, your opening bid is one of resistance and resentment. I find it kind of weird that they're using glasses outside, by the way. I wouldn't wooden cups be more of a druid thing. Maybe that's just another cliche that you want to find reasons to circumvent, but glass just seems a bit of a fragile hassle for outside unless you're like a middle-class family with a camper van and, and not really on brand. Anyway, just something to think about. But somebody has to do it. He winked at Sheer in the firelight. Ew. So I know I just said people in real life often speak in, speak in cliches and the fact that someone might resort to a cliche or lots of cliches can reveal something about their character. So I am not saying you must never allow cliches to slip into your dialogue. But I think this early you're taking a risk by letting a character resort to one. And I kind of think that in science fiction and fantasy, your world should have different cliches for what it's worth you know different little homilies turns of phrases because they have different art different foundational texts different religion their languages have developed differently they've got different environments in which they've grown up in and different histories that have informed their culture right and I know some people listening right now won't consider 
but somebody has to do it. A cliche. And sure, it's not quite at the level of A Stitch in Time Saves Nine or You Look Like Shit, but to me, it's close enough to cliche that it just sounds dead on the ear. The wink that he gives her and her reaction to it are good. Nice establishing of tone, some conflict, and, and we feel on her side, which is great as well. We're, I'm definitely empathising with her, not him. The ew does a lot, in fact, in a very, in two, that's two letters, and it does so much. That's fantastic, right? You wouldn't get an ew in, like, deadly serious epic fantasy, so it marks this out as a bit contemporary and not comic exactly, but personal. We're going to be following her, and it gives it kind of like sense of, I don't want to say it gives it a sense of youth. I sound like a, a high court judge, but you know what I mean, right? You're giving us direct access to her thoughts. You're passing sheer the mic. The actual dynamic here is really good. I cut this glade myself. Admittedly, there weren't many trees to cut. The flora is sparse here, as you can see. If a character feels the need to add a phrase like, as you can see, or, as you know, that is a clue that the thing you're forcing them to say is awkward and stilted and fake. Imagine sitting in a glade round a campfire, put yourself in this druid's position, right, and saying out loud the phrase, the flora is sparse here. He doesn't, he doesn't sound like a hoary old druid at one with the land. He sounds like a retired sergeant major instructing a landscape gardener where to build the gazebo. And look, it's fine for him to be a bit of a blowhard, a bit tedious, a bit pompous, but I think he ought to be able to get a bit more specific than flora. He doesn't have to be an archetypal druid. In fact, it's more interesting if he isn't. But if he's really done this job for years... Even if he is a bit of a knob, I struggle to believe he isn't an expert on the land around him. To be honest, as an occasionally tedious male know-it-all myself, I know we take deep comfort in taxonomies, in knowing the names for things. It's it's just, you know, I'm I'm now a dad and and I'm just I'm I'm moving into that role, right? You 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 like knowing stuff. It's comforting, especially as a nerd as well, right? But I think I think druids would know the common names for things, whereas flora immediately suggests Latin designations, scholarships, and a far more academic academic approach. Like I know Latin doesn't exist in your world, by the way, but we have to assume some kind of concordance where we're reading a translation in which high and low registers and kind of like anglophone and francophone and uh, Latinate uh, words um, more or less match in terms of the designation and where they land on the cultural scale, right? So, like, natural world common names in our world are so evocative. Skullcap, field madder, ladies' bedstraw, thrift, loose strife, spurge, vetch, black medic, traveller's joy. You know, you know, if you've listened to this show before, you know what I'm going to say next. Here it comes. Ready? crunchy specificity don't have him say trees flora give us a couple of specific terms they could be ash or maple willow oak or spruce or varieties of tree you've made up unique to your world things that give us an idea about what this world's about how are the trees named you know don't tell us this guy's a druid show us he's a druid my main problem though with this dialogue is why should we care? What's at stake? Why are we joining the story here of all places? 
She doesn't care about his past. Nothing's hanging on his answers. This might be the sort of thing you could get away with later in the book, you know, when they're on a break in that kind of like on the Freitag's pyramid, right at the kind of like in the valley of the falling action. Uh, they're on the way to somewhere else. They stop, they make a campfire. We get a little bit of insight into a character we've hung around with for a while. Do you know, you might be able to do it then. It might be appropriate when we know him or her or the world and we've got some stakes. But right now, it's just Wikipedia inside speech marks. And this is coming from somebody, honestly, who loves in-world law actually far more than most people that I engage with, right? I love footnotes. Most people I speak to say they hate footnotes. I love them and I love them in books. And I always know I'm going to get on with the story when I encounter them. I love bestiaries. I love found texts. I love chapters in fantasy that start with quotations from ancient tomes. All that kind of stuff. I can't get enough of it. So I'm not against world building at all. That's what I'm here for. That is what I paid my price of entry for. I just think it's crucial that you don't sacrifice characters upon that altar. The the law altar. The law altar. No, it doesn't work, does it? And I built my home with these very hands. I'm not the strapping young man I used to be, and I don't shy from hardship. Not old Zartes. The duty I accepted at the Druid Council. Yeah, I mean, I get that this is supposed to be cartoonish dialogue slightly. Like, different stories can have different registers, and it's it's ridiculous to say that everything should be super realistic. I don't write characters who speak in a in kind of strictly uh, realistic dialogue. Uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in drama and uh, flavour and style and all those kind of things. And and it's fun, like what he's saying, right? I get a sense of him and he's, he's waffling. I get that that's supposed to be part of it too. But I can't help but suspect you're using the fact that he is a waffler and a bit of a blowhard to try to get away with spoon feeding us all this info, right? His name's Zartes. A watcher is appointed by the Druid Council and sometimes... You can get away with that sort of exposition in dialogue. I've certainly written it, right? I enjoy writing it, but I don't think you can open with it. We talk about novels and short stories being distinct crafts, but I really do think beginnings, middles and ends are distinct crafts too. A first page is a combination shop window, on-ramp, clickbait and briefing room. It can be other things too if you choose to make it so, but what it decidedly isn't is a spot of gentle downtime where you can have fun introducing us to amusing local NPCs. If you need us to know that he's Zartes and he was accepted at the Druid Council, I'd rather you just told us flatly in the narrative. But oh wait, you do! Her father seemed enraptured by their host, but surely that was the wine. How long would he make them stay here with this old, this old leathery... Shira praised Zartes, who was still blathering on and on about his boring duty to the Druid Council. There you go. The two bits of info seamlessly passed on to the reader without doing violence to the verisimilitude of your characters. The Felini are terrifying, my dear, Zartes said. He was talking to her. She snapped back to the present. So... This feels more convincing as exposition because it feels like Zartes might conceivably be telling her something she doesn't already know. And he has motivation to, to do so in this bit, right? He's showing off. He's trying to get a rise out of her, maybe. We don't know. He's trying to come off all worldly and maybe sort of impress her a bit or say something around the campfire that's a bit spooky, you know. And I suddenly sat up at this point because... Here we get the first hint of proper conflict within the world, you know, danger, something that feels like it's going to be important, like a, 
a concept. And I think as readers get more fantasy literate, you start to become very alive to when a world crucial concept or species or magic system element is being introduced to you, something the story is going to turn on and you sit up and go, oh, that's exciting. Um, And this was a moment that I had that, but also it feels like it's embedded in the characters in a way that I don't feel that they're just being puppets for you to deliver sort of like the pieces for you to set up your story. And that's great, right? uh, Story-wise, I now go, oh, this is... I'm getting out my highlighter pen and I'm highlighting this. And the adults aren't taking Shia very seriously in this scene. But I bet soon enough she's going to become their only hope. That's the sense I get of where it's going. And I don't mean to sound that like I'm dismissing it as a trope. I'm saying it's it's great for me that I'm starting to anticipate stories that could arise out of this. It's cool. You've set up this situation where there's these two grown-ups who think they know everything. And she's just a kid. And pretty soon she's going to be tested. And all sorts of exciting stuff is going to happen. And she's going to have choices to make and tests to pass or fail. Overall, looking at this extract, this opening, I I quite like the hints we're getting of your protagonist here. She seems cool. I'm... This is the kind of person I'd want to follow on a on a story. Uh, but I'm having to guess at that a little bit. I say she seems cool because she's kind of bullied out at this first scene. You know, I'd like a central conflict she's facing in this first scene, one that embodies on some level, even even if it's a very minor one, um, the central journey she is going to have to go through to be, to be front and centre in this scene, I'd like it to be. Zati's being a blathery dullard actually shunts her out of her own story when you can allude to what he's saying you know when when you just say who was still blathering on and on about his boring duty to the druid council that and like one or two sentences is really all the flavor we need I, I think it's fine to have her filter it out and focus on what's important to her I appreciate that part of her arc is probably going to be precisely this, you know, learning to assert herself, finding ways to be heard so the men don't just talk over her. But I don't feel invested enough in this opening scene because she's been jostled out of it. And I'd like, not only would I like tighter interiority here, but I'd also like a conflict she's facing in the here and now, you know, something with a touch of urgency. Uh, It might not be big in world terms, but I think it should be important to her. It should have emotional consequences. You know, so you have a definite reason for our joining her, for our starting the story right now in this scene. Why here, of all places? Why does the story start now? And the answer can't be because someone's obligingly providing story essential exposition. I want some stakes. What's at stake here? What conflict does she face? What test? And what are the consequences of success or failure? Now, it might sound like I'm being very doctrinaire here and saying every seat, you must have this and this and this. Um, You don't. Like I say, there are norms rather than rules. And I would sort of go further and say that some of those norms are fairly solid principles of composition that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there are solid reasons why they work. But you don't have to do any of that. You can, of course, you can be sort of wild and experimental, but there are going to be certain costs and you have to you have to make sure there's still something that you are laying down for the reader in this combination shop window, clickbait, a briefing room, 
Now, there's got to be some reason why we want to continue and some reason for starting the story here, because your world is appearing ex nihilo. It is just emerging out of the blackness, out of the void. And as readers, I'm not saying like every reader is being like a a fucking hard ass about it and going, impress me and kind of sitting with their arms folded. But at the same time, we don't have any particular reason to trust you. We are all temporarily sentient aggregations of meat who will eventually rot down into the soil from whence we emerged and lose all memory of having ever been alive or having ever existed in the universe at all. I don't say that to depress you, although if you feel depressed by it, I think that's a perfectly reasonable reaction. But the point is that we have this tiny flicker of existence in which to live and breathe and love our families. And as writers... That is what, that's our competition, is a hug from a loved one, is eating an apple, is having sex, is sleeping, is going on the internet. People talk about the internet as if it's like this massive waste of time, but we have invented a electronically distributed portal containing more or less the sum total of all human knowledge, available mostly free at one's fingertips, semi-instantaneously. There is a reason why that is a, a baffling box of wonder. Human beings, there's never been more things to distract us as human beings, um, which is good because we don't want to think about our own impending, inevitable um, and permanent deaths. So as a writer, we have a responsibility to make sure that when someone sits down with us, we've thought about what we're going to say to them and we give them the strongest opening bid we possibly can. One that reaches across the table, knocking the wine cups to the floor, grabs them by their collar, yanks them forward and says, you're never going to believe what happened to this girl share right so thank you m for submitting anyone else who fancies a go in the barrel go onto my website timclairpoet.co.uk and drop the first 250 words of your novel or story polished to a high shine into the contact me link as long as you're happy with my using them on the show i'd love to hear from you if you want a 10 minute creative exercise from me to work up and train some of those writing chops to make sure that you are respecting the reader's time as much as you can, then you can click the link in the show notes or Google Tim Clare Weekly Writing Workout. I've been setting this up and I've talked to you. Some of you know about this already. It's dead simple. It's free. Over 400 people have signed up already. It's just something to sharpen your writing once a week, every week. You read this description that I emailed to you, set a timer for 10 minutes and do it. Then you're done. You've got a definite writing win for the week. You produce something you weren't expecting because I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be in advance. So it's going to be something you weren't going to write. Uh, and every week you can have an achievement. Every week you can be pushing the limits of uh, who you are as a writer. And it'll be fun as well. It's like they're a piss about as well. So you, it's going to be great. And it's completely free and I really enjoy making them and I love hearing from you. So you can also, if you go on to Twitter, if you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag 
weekly writing workout to share your experience of doing it or even to share the bits you've written and if you go onto Twitter now and click it you can see some people who've done it already um it, I'm really enjoying doing it sign up let's surprise themselves and if you have signed up by the way and you haven't received anything please do check your spam folder your junk mail all that kind of thing because some of the stuff's been disappearing into there I am no expert on setting up um mailing lists uh and um I think we just need to uh so you just you know add the address the email address to your contact lists uh whitelist it uh on whatever email client you're using and that should hopefully make the problem a little less bad right more of this nonsense next week in the meantime make it fun for yourself remember you're a fantastic unique human being support other writers including of course me by the ice house to boost your sense of community and release those feel-good chemicals in the brain and never, ever put the milk in before the tea. Look after yourself, you little rascal. Namaste.